It was Oliver Cromwell who said to his uh, son's tutor, I would have my son learn a little history. And uh, over these past three studies, we've learned just a little history about uh, the Christian church and the impact that evangelicals have made on this country. Just before he went home to glory in uh, 1981, Dr. Lloyd-Jones said this, The last great battle of the church in this country will be over what is an evangelical. I don't think Dr. Lloyd-Jones would ever call himself a prophet, but uh, he certainly was prophetic when he said that. What on earth is an evangelical? It almost seems that everyone's evangelical these days, even the Pope. And a friend of mine said, evangelicalism is the broad base on which we're all sinking. We all claim to be evangelicals, and yet it seems that we're going down. We have been looking at the 18th century and the 19th century, and we saw that the 19th century was a very, very busy century. So many things going on, it was so exciting, and it seems that the work of John Wesley had been carried on in a thousand one different ways. And yet, in spite of all that good work, there were signs of decay. You can get that in a tree. I'm a trained horticulturist, and you can get a tree that looks healthy and is flourishing, and yet there are signs that there's something wrong with the roots, and before long, it will start to show. And believe it or not, before the 20th century commenced, there were signs of decay within the church in this country, particularly among evangelicals, uh, and we today in the 21st century are, are picking up the pieces. The population at the... Uh, the end of the, uh, the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, was 36 million. We're now 74 million. So, so basically the population during the, uh, the past, uh, past 100 years has doubled again. It's quite frightening. So many people. And there were three things that really were going wrong with the church that had a massive impact on her evangelism. And uh, these are very simple things, and yet very complex things. Let me explain. The first is what I've called the downgrade movement. In 1887, uh, the Sword and Trowel, which was a magazine published by Mr. Spurgeon, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, contained an article written by a friend of Mr. Spurgeon called Robert Schindler. And the entitlement of this article was, We Are Going Downhill at Breakneck Speed. And the article said that the church was, was, was losing its confidence in the gospel and was uh, buying into liberalism and also to the teaching of Charles Darwin. Schindler said this, The tadpole of evolution has been hatched in Shrewsbury and is now turning into a frog. Meaning these views that have been propounded are now becoming very, very popular, not just in the world, but also in the church. And this idea of life is evolving, and it, it didn't start like this, but it's going towards that. This kind of understanding came into Scripture. And that the Bible is, is, is evolving, and that we gain things, and that we lose things. And therefore we need to have a fresh look at what Scripture is all about. And so towards the end of Mr. Spurgeon's time in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and then at the beginning of the 20th century, God's Word was literally up for grabs. Is the word of God really the word of God, or does it contain the word of God? I don't know if you understand that concept. It's like fertilizer. Fertilizer is made of NPK, three elements. But if you receive those three elements to try to scatter them on your lawn, you would probably burn them. So what happens? 
The manufacturer puts lots of sand in and dust, bits of sawdust, to help you scatter these, these nutrients and these trace elements to get an even balance. And that's people's understanding of the Word of God so often, that the Word of God isn't the Word of God. There's lots of rubbish in there, but it contains the Word of God. And it's up to us to filter it out. And that is what basically the downgrade movement was all about. And, and Mr. Spurgeon argued along with his friend that we're no longer taking the word of God seriously. We're bringing all these evolutionary ideas into the church in our understanding of scripture. And, and we are destroying ourselves. There were many people who got involved in this battle. And there's an important magazine that you need to know about called the British Weekly. Uh, not a very imaginative title, but the British Weekly. And the editor of that magazine was, was a man called, here's his full name, Sir William Robertson Nicholl. Lloyd-Jones had no time for him. And Lloyd-Jones reckoned that this man did a great deal of damage. To put it in a nutshell, this Scotsman, who had an immense library, and, and smoked like a, a Lancashire cotton mill chimney, uh, it was always covered with cigarette dust, uh, ash and so on. Uh, and he lived in Hampstead. He was the editor of this, this Christian magazine. And he tried to keep evangelicals together and liberals together. Saying, we need to have a fresh look at scripture. And maybe we differ on its authority and its inspiration. But we can still hold on to the gospel. And surely as evangelicals we believe, you cannot let go of the authority of God's word and still think you can have the authority of the gospel. And so this man is to invite well-known people that you know of to write articles which to the average layman made a lot of sense, but quietly were undermining the word of God. People like Marcus Dodds, John Clifford, who was one time president of the Baptist Union, George Adam Smith, R.J. Campbell, Henry Drummond. What I find amazing is this. I hope you understand this. Henry Drummond was a Scotsman. He's, uh, if you ever go to Stirling Castle, just go around the back and Henry Drummond's buried there. Uh, an interesting little man. He died of bone cancer in his 40s and I feel very sorry for him about that. He was the man who invited D.L. Moody to Scotland and stood with D.L. Moody. But he was a ranked liberal. Horatius Bonner who was around at that time, uh, he never minced his words, even though he wrote some very sweet hymns. This is what he said about uh, Henry Drummond. Mr. Drummond is atheistic, pantheistic, and I know not what, and his teaching is poison. Wow. And this is, this is Henry Drummond probably summarizes what was going on at the end of, of the 19th century, at the beginning of the 20th century that you can, you can sort of say, well, I'm not all that sure that the Pentateuch was written by Moses. I'm not all that sure that Daniel was a prophet. I think, I think the writings of Daniel came after the events, and therefore he's a historical writer, not a prophetic writer. And then you came to the Gospels, and I'm not all that sure that, that Matthew wrote Matthew, and Mark wrote Mark, and Luke wrote Luke, and you know how it goes. And I'm quite certain that the Apostle John didn't write the book of Revelation, and that when it comes to Isaiah, I think there may be two Isaiahs, or three Isaiahs. In fact, one man said, I think there were 64 Isaiahs. <laughs> Until in the end you get to a situation, well, who wrote what and what is what? Henry Drummond was the epitome of that, yet at the same time was desperate to hold on to the gospel. And this caused great, great damage in the church. And this is what Mr. Spurgeon used to, used to argue about. 
And believe it or not, when I trained at a theological college, I trained at Cardiff University for the ministry, uh, I was just taught by rank heretics. I was taught by men who didn't believe in the resurrection and that Moses didn't write this and Isaiah didn't write that. And You know, having come from a Bible-believing home, for me it was crucial to find out if what I believed was real, but I was astounded that people were going into the ministry with no understanding of the authority of God. So much so that when I trained for ministry, I had the nickname in the college of the last of the Puritans. <laughs> Thinking, I am not the last of the Puritans, far from it. But that just said where they were at. By the way, a friend of mine, because the college was very thin on the ground with men going into the ministry, we had lots of people from other courses in the university. We had medics and so on, and different people coming in. That's how I met my wife. She came in reading English and uh, we then got married later on. But, but every Wednesday afternoon, a medic and myself committed ourselves to two hours of evangelism, just going around the streets of Cardiff, talking about the Lord Jesus to people. And I'm in a theological college with men training for the ministry, and in three years, not one theological student joined us. So, so how on earth can these men then get into the pulpit and preach passionately when they haven't done it for three years. And then I suddenly began to realize, wait a minute, uh, what on earth is this all about? This idea that you can play fast and loose with God's word and yet still preach some kind of gospel. Well, Mr. Spurgeon was up against that, and to be honest, that's what we're up against today. And uh, if you tell people that you're a Bible-believing Christian, you almost have to bring out the smell insults. You, you really believe it's, it's God's word? In fact, have you noticed these days, we, I mean, you can almost write your own version of the Bible. I, I, think, I think it means this, and I think I'll just translate it that way. Until in the end, we haven't a clue what the text says. Well, Mr. Spurgeon was up against that. That had a massive impact on, on the Christian church. Therefore, you can understand the shock that this country had when an American came to this country and said, the Bible says. The Bible says. You know? That rankled with some people. But he was saying, we've got to go back to what the Word of God says. That was the first thing that really began to undermine the authority of the church and confuse people. By the way, you've heard of William Barclay. Uh, how interesting. When I was, when I was in my teenage years, uh, our Christian bookshop used to sell William, William Barclay, but under the counter. <laughs> like pornography. <coughs> You know, and they put it in a brown paper bag and you could have room. <laughs> These days, most evangelical bookshops sell William Barclay. William Barclay had some interesting comments to make. Here's one of his comments. He said, I could never understand why students coming to my university came as evangelicals and left as liberals. Well, I can well understand Mr. Barclay. Or Dr. Barclay. The second great impact that really hit the church in this country was not only the downgrade controversy, which really has still been rolling for many, many years, with, with, with German scholarship, by the way, and a lot of this stuff was coming in from Germany with people like Wellhausen and Ritzel and, 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 and Rudolf Bultmann. Have anyone studied Bultmann at all? You never heard of Rudolf Bultmann? Anyone with a name like Rudolf Bultmann, you've got to suspect, is being tricky. You know, uh, we had a song in college, Rudolf the Red-Nosed Liberal, has a very radical view 
And if you don't watch out carefully, he will come and demythologize you. <laughs> but you had all these men undermining. And, and I, I once heard one man say that, that uh, not only did Germany give us the Holocaust, which is terrible, but also it gave us liberal scholarship, which was even worse. And by the way, all this stuff filtered into Bible colleges and then into the pulpit and then into the church. And it was just sucking the goodness out of the church. Secondly, there was World War One. It's hard to say how many churchgoers and chapelgoers were actually killed during World War One. It's amazing. I don't know if this is just as an aside. Have you noticed uh, we British celebrate failures? Have you noticed that Scott doesn't go to the end? Well, he doesn't. We get to the South Pole, but he's second, so we celebrate it. You know what I mean? Somebody does this, fails, we celebrate them. And have you noticed we as a nation are very good at celebrating things like wars, where millions of people are killed. You know, uh, World War I was a terrible war, it was a tragic war. It was a stupid war. And yet millions and millions of people were killed. And without any doubt at all, it took out thousands of young men from the churches. Thousands of young men. You've heard of Oswald Chambers? Yes, he, 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 he was a chaplain uh, serving uh, in the British Army. He finished up in Egypt holding Bible studies to hundreds of men down in Cairo. And then sadly he got an infection and died. I remember being in Cairo several years ago and going to see his grave. Just a very simple military grave of Oswald Chambers. But many never came back. And those who came back suddenly realized how petty the church had become. Let me just illustrate it in relation to World War II. My father went... I'm so sorry, yes. I just don't like being an impaisley. Uh, He's dead. No, no. Uh, my, my father was in World War II and, and went through World War II, went through D-Day and so on, and, and finished up in India waiting for the Japanese invasion, which never came. All the time he was in the armed forces during World War II, he never met one believer. One night a week when he was in India, in Delhi, in the Red Fort, they used to have a film night, and there were Mickey Mouse films. And when my father came home from the war, he happened to say casually in one of the meetings that one night a week he used to watch Mickey Mouse. If he did, he was called up before the eldership to say, brother, that's the world. You should have been studying God's word, not watching Mickey Mouse. Well, my father said he came with an inch of walking out of the church. Having gone through D-Day and seen hundreds of men shot and been hit by a grenade himself and all the rest, to then have men who kept their jobs during World War II and made quite a packet, telling him what was worldly and wasn't worldly, almost pushed him out of the church. In the end, he left the Brethren Assembly. And then, when I was there, I happened to stay there, we were one evening discussing worldly things. What is worldly and not worldly? And so my father naughtily set me up. <laughs> he said, when you discuss this next week, ask them a question. Say, our forefathers said the cinema and television was wrong, but you've all got one. Therefore, were our forefathers wrong, or have you backslidden? <laughs> <laughs> so I asked it. <laughs> well, it's like this, David. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, coming back from the military field made him realize how petty those churches were. If he felt that, so did thousands more. 
And many felt that at the end of World War I, that the pulpit is not answering the questions that I am asking. And therefore, this is not a place for a man. And uh, sad to say, the church then became very much a lifeboat in its orientation, women and children first. And to be honest, even now in the 21st century, most churches are lifeboat churches, women and children first. And then men come somewhere right at the back. I heard one man say, the reason why many churches are filled with old women is because there's lots of old women in the pulpits. And even as a man, I, I lived in the world of horticulture. You kind of come out of that real world and come into the church, and as a pastor, you find yourself stepping into a female world. And as a bloke, I, I have struggled with that probably right throughout my Christian ministry. So that men are nowhere to be seen, and if they are, they're right at the back. Uh, and churches are run by women and everything is children oriented. And so here at the end of World War One, some men said, enough is enough. I've lived in a man's world, I've lived in a real world with real questions, and I come back to women and children and insipid Christianity. No thank you. And then, I suppose into that comes uh, Woodbine Willie. Woodbine Willie, uh, Studdard Kennedy, George Studdard Kennedy. He, he was a pastor in, in Worcester, and you can see monuments to him in Worcester, but uh, he was a chaplain during World War I. He was incredibly liberal, and he was known for lighting woodbine cigarettes and sticking them into the mouths of those who were injured or dying. Hence the nickname Woodbine Willie. And that just about summarizes the chaplaincy in those days. That all that we can give a dying man is a cigarette to smoke. Pathetic. And then the third thing that really hammered the church, more than non-conformist church, than the Anglican church, was Lloyd George and his affair with Francis Stevenson. We've spoken about the Anglican church being the conservative church, the conservative party at prayer. The liberal party was really the non-conformist church of prayer. Most non-conformists were liberals. Not the kind of liberal politics that you see today with the liberal democrats, but there were liberals as in the case of Lloyd George. And so he was the main spokesman for the non-conformist church, and, and he was greatly supported by statesmen within the non-conformist church. Take, for example, a man like J.D. Jones... J.D. Jones was minister of Richmond Hill Church in Bournemouth, which is still there. Half the town council formed his eldership. What he preached on a Sunday was on the agenda of the council on Monday. That's the kind of men these people were. And so Lloyd George, he's a non-conformist, he's Welsh, he understands us, and he's liberal. Then it was discovered he's been having an affair for years. That really scuppered the discernment and the integrity of church leaders. Of, oh, so he's your spokesman. And you know, I suppose ever since then, really, the non-conformist church has been really struggling. One would say the liberals have been struggling too, but that's another issue in and of itself. <laughs> and, but it did go into the doldrums. His sin did really cause major problems politically. And so here is the Christian church coming into the 20th century full of hope, full of excitement. We as a nation, we ran into World War I, then the Titanic went down, and, and, and things that were going to look bright and wonderful suddenly collapsed around our ears. Liberal scholarship was now eating at the heart of the church. 
World War I came and robbed us of our men and our integrity in the zone was lost with Lloyd George. Is it all doom and gloom? No. There were five groups of people at the beginning of the 20th century, right through almost to the end, who were passionate about getting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ out. What were these groups? Number one, local churches. There were some good men during those days. I mentioned in the last lecture, J.C. Ryle of Liverpool. You know, how about this? He was a bishop, and one of his 300 tracts that he wrote was entitled, Are You Converted? Isn't that refreshing? A bishop who writes tracts, Are You Converted? And, and then there was Bishop Hanley Mool. Uh, Seems that the bishops of Durham have had uh, a bad track record towards the end of the 20th century, but he was an evangelical, godly preacher. His commentaries are still available. And by the way, the Mool family, which kind of originate from Dorset, were big friends with Thomas Hardy. And, and Thomas Hardy and Hanley Mool and the whole family were, were incredibly close. Thomas Hardy knew the gospel, but he rejected it which is very, very sad. But Bishop Hamlin Moore. And then how about this? Bishop Taylor Smith. You've heard of him? He was chaplain general of the British Army. And when he was interviewing people for the chaplaincy, he's well known for this simple sentence. Here it is. Let me read it out to get it right. What would you say to a man who was fatally wounded, but conscious, and only had ten minutes to live? There's a lot of pastors who couldn't answer that. We've got a good course starting next week. <laughs> Read this book. And, and this bishop said, if you, cannot, if you cannot articulate the gospel in ten minutes, I don't want you working for me in the British Army as a chaplain. So there were some good bishops, and we thank God for that. And also there were some great preachers in the non-conformist church. Graham Scroggy. Graham Scoggin was pastor of uh, Charlotte Chapel in Edinburgh for 17 years. And while he was there, he put 31 men in the ministry and 52 people on the mission field. Do you feel crushed? By the way, I was, this is just an aside, I'm sure you appreciate the sights. Uh, I, I was once preaching in South Wales and I got speaking to one of the deacons and I, I said, uh, you always live down here? He said, no, I've I lived in Scotland most of my life. So I said, what did you do there? He said, oh, I was the caretaker at Charlotte Chapel. Okay. So I said, anything exciting? He said, yes, my first day of work. He said, I had to go down to the central station in, in Edinburgh and, and collect the body of Graham Scrawny because he died. And he said, I had to bring him up with the undertakers to the church. I had to sit in the church all night with Graham Scrawny. <laughs> he was interesting and then there was Dinsdale Young I don't know if you've heard of Dinsdale Young I was once speaking at a historical society and some of his relatives were there you know and uh, just happened to throw in a comment about Dinsdale Young I don't know why I threw it in and they came and said we're his relatives and we've got stuff from his funeral and it was a fascinating conversation. He was a great preacher. Alan Redpath sat under Dinsdale Young. And he said, he used, to, he used to preach looking at his notes. And every now and then he would look up. And he said the whole congregation waited for him to look up. Because she knew he had a gem coming. 
He was then followed by W.E. Sangster. And uh, when Sangster became president of the Methodist Conference, his presidential address was asking people to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Not kind of world peace, let's work together, unity, but saying to these dear Methodist people, are you really born again in the Spirit of God? And then there was Dr. Lloyd-Jones. Kind of, uh, when I was pastoring in South Wales, there was this vying among pastors in the movement as to who was the greatest friend of Dr. Lloyd-Jones. And, and you'd go in these studies and you'd find these huge pictures of Lloyd-Jones. Uh, Lloyd and uh, on one occasion, I was a member of a church and we went on this pilgrimage down West Wales to see his grave. We had a service and a little reading. We went all around. It was quite interesting, really. Slightly Catholic, but fascinating. <laughs> yeah. We were then given rosaries. Hail Calvin. <laughs> Someone said to Dr. Lloyd-Jones, uh, have you ever thought of having an evangelistic campaign here, Doctor? He said, my dear friends, we have one every Sunday evening. Every Sunday evening. We have one. He said, and he used to preach 45, 50 minutes every Sunday evening preaching the gospel. He was a man for his time. In fact, if you hear people giving political speeches from the 1940s and 50s, it's like Lloyd-Jones. But there were people throughout these difficult days who were preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and we thank God for them. Secondly, Pentecostal churches. How I thank God for Pentecostal. Amen. And there were people... Uh, Around, maybe not the brightest theologians in the Christian church, but they were passionate about the gospel and they formed Pentecostal churches. Campbell Morgan was not impressed with the Pentecostal church, and I'm sure he's lived to regret this now, but I have it on record at home. He called Pentecost, as, as in the Pentecostal church, Satan's last vomit. You must be very careful when you speak about things. You may not understand them, but I don't think it's wise putting those kind of sentences together. Well, the Pentecostal church, whether we like it or not, preached powerfully the gospel and the need for people to be born again. And uh, I work on the philosophy, I would rather the pot boil over than never boil at all. And uh, you know those kind of churches that you walk in and open the door and the light comes on? Called fridges. <laughs> <laughs> it's the end of the conference, I know. Yes. And, and we, I could stand here for, for, for quite a long time talking about the Pentecostal church and the impact that it had on this country. And I say, thank God for simple-minded Pentecostals who were not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. In Cardiff, there was a man called Percy Brewster. I was in college, just so happens, just pure coincidence. The boy in the, in the, in the, in the next room to me was his grandson. I didn't know who Percy Brewster was at the time. Percy Brewster was the pastor of the city temple in Cardiff. And while he was in Cardiff, he used to go out missions all around South Wales. And at the end of his ministry, he had planted no less than 42 Pentecostal churches in South Wales. All came out of missions, preaching Christ, people getting saved, and then saying, right, you need to stay here and form a local church. Back in Inskip, where I pastor, we have a, we have a cemetery. It's a small cemetery, it's a very interesting cemetery. Some very interesting people who were in there. This is no lie whatsoever. The commonest name 
on all the gravestones in our cemetery is crook. <laughs> so our cemetery is full of crooks. But uh, there are some interesting characters. There's a man there called Gordon Cove. And it was by pure chance, a man said to me in my congregation, he said, do you know that we have a Pentecostal evangelist church plan to bury? I said, no. He said, I'll lend you his biography. It was unbelievable. This man in the 40s and 50s going around Britain, hiring a town hall, a village hall, and just preaching Christ and staying there until the place was full to overflowing and then leaving when it was enough to form a church. So we thank God for people like Percy Brewster. John Nelson Parr of Stockport. You know, he died in the 1970s. You know, he, he hired a hall in Bury for 600 people and invited Stephen Jeffries. And 50 came. And the next night, 50 came. And the next night, 50 came. He kept persevering until in the end, the place was full to the doors and hundreds were coming to faith in Christ. And again, we may say, well, I don't stand shoulder to shoulder with John Nelson Parr in some of his understanding of the Holy Spirit. But that man put thousands into the kingdom of God. He started a large work in Manchester, <coughs> and, and the history of John Nelson Parr is breathtaking. And by the way, there's a world of difference between a Pentecostal and a Charismatic. And there's a world of difference between the early Pentecostals and the latter Pentecostals. I had a lady in my last church. She was a woman of God. Her and her husband were Pentecostal, who knew all the pioneers. And this is no exaggeration. I used to go and pray with her. And there were times when the Spirit of God came down in the room when she prayed. Mixing with people like Billy Burton, Harold Horton, the big pioneers of the Pentecostal church. And the Spirit of God was tangible. She said to me, David, in those early days, God was real. It's not that we started preaching signs and wonders and gifts. We just preached Jesus and the Spirit came down. I live on the outskirts of Preston. Preston was really the centre of Pentecostalism in Britain. Uh, there are houses for sale in our village on a regular basis. And the estate agent is uh, Entwistle and Green. Entwistle and Green brought, bought out a small company called Myerscoes. And the founder of Myerscoes Estate Agents was Thomas Myersko, a Pentecostal. And after he'd sold houses during the day, he opened his front room two nights a week to run a Bible school. And, and, and Lancashire mill workers at the beginning of the 20th century would come to this house to be taught the things of God. On one occasion, a man called Fred Ramsbottom came to this Bible school and said to Thomas Myersko, I feel God is calling me to a mission to be to the mission field in Africa. Thomas Marasca, down to earth Lancastrian, said, Well, prove it. Lead twelve people to Jesus and bring them to this Bible school, and I believe that you're an evangelist. Because he said, If you can't do it in Preston, lad, they won't do it over there. So Fred Ramsbottom went out and led twelve to the Lord and brought them and enrolled them in the Bible school. He said, Fred, that's wonderful. Give us another 12. <laughs> and he went out and brought 12 more that he led to Christ and then rolled them in the Bible school. 
That has got to be with the Spirit of God. You know because you're evangelists. And that took place on my doorstep. And sometimes when I go into town, I just drive past that street and say, Lord, how glory must have filled this street a hundred years ago. And people drive past without knowing it. And I say from the bottom of my heart, Lord, thank God for faithful, independent Anglicans and non-conformists who during these difficult days preach the gospel. And thank God for faithful Pentecostals. This country would be a lot poorer without them. And then here's another one. The Salvation Army. The Salvation Army. Soup, soap, and salvation. Yeah. Whenever I think of those three S's, I always think of Les Dilson, who, you know, has finished his days of living the same time. He said, California is a great day for, a great place for a family holiday. He said, the sun for the children, the sun for the wife, and the sharks for the mother-in-law. <laughs> yeah. Sand, sun, and sharks. Anyway, soup. Soap and salvation. I'm sure you know that William Booth was invited to visit the king. The king at that time was Edward VII. And he was invited on the 24th of June, 1907. And he wrote this in the Royal Visitor's Book at Buckingham Palace. Some men's ambition is art. Some men's ambition is fame. Some men's ambition is gold. My ambition is the souls of men. I should say that to the king. We put nice lunch. <laughs> you know how it is in these country churches? Peaceful. Thank you for leaving the doors open. No, he wanted the king to know that his ambition was souls. And right throughout his life, he just, he just went round preaching and preaching and preaching and going for the worst. Great man of God. One thing that is disappearing, well, there are many things that are disappearing from our land that are going to become relics. Things like phone boxes, post offices. They're all disappearing very, very quickly. Here's another thing that uh, is, is, is disappearing. A hymn book. I have a shelf of hymn books by my left-hand side in my study. I use them in my devotions. They're rich. And even the Salvation Army hymn book, which was put together by William Booth, is the most fascinating hymn book, and it's great stuff to read. In that hymn book alone, there are over 200 hymns pleading with sinners to yield to Christ. By the way, have you noticed, we never sing those kind of hymns anymore. All that we sing is celebratory. I would say 95% of what we sing is celebratory. And you know, that is not a balanced view of life because you're not always celebrating. Sometimes you're crying. Sometimes you don't want to sing. Well, here in the Salvation Army book, pleading, singing to people, you need to accept the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Salvation Army did terrific work. In my kind of reading over these past 12 months, I read the biography of a lady called Mother Shepherd. Mother Shepherd was in Aberdare. She was an alcoholic. She was about to commit suicide when the Lord sent a Christian across her path and she got saved. William Booth was so impressed with her salvation that he said, I want you to man a station for me in the Ronda Valley and then later Aberdeer. Her, her biography is breathtaking. She died in the 1930s. I've actually seen her gravestone in Aberdeer. How about this one, Epitaph? Mother Shepherd. She won thousands of souls to Christ in the Welsh valleys. Thousands. And when you read a biography, it's absolutely true. 
She was a little woman. He didn't mess with her. But she was full of the Holy Spirit. And that great hymn by William Booth, Oh God of burning, cleansing fire, send the fire. She was full of it. Such was the Spirit of God in the Salvation Army. And I say, Lord, I know the Pentecostals are a long way from what they should be, and so is the Salvation Army. But they were crucial at that time in our nation's history. This may shock you. Number four, hold on to your seats, fasten your seatbelts. The Plymouth Brethren. See? Why the The Plymouth Brethren are incredible people. There's a wonderful quotation by W.G.H. Thomas about the Plymouth Brethren. He said, the Plymouth Brethren are rightly known for rightly dividing the word of God and wrongly dividing each other. (laughs) Is it a coincidence that their meeting places were called gospel halls? Why? Because here was a group of people who were not ashamed of the gospel. And when you read the history of the early Plymouth brethren, who didn't start in Plymouth, but started in Dublin under a tree, and then met in a house, when you look at the early pioneers of the Plymouth brethren, they were all evangelistic. They weren't concerned with bells and pomegranates, you know, and the, the fittings of the temple and the tabernacle. Primarily they came out and were passionate about evangelism. And J.N. Darby, one of the early pioneers of the Brethren movement, he was a terrific evangelist among Irish Catholics and led hundreds to the Lord. I have a number of books at home published by John Ritchie. Every year, every ten years, they publish a book. And uh, it's an interesting book. The title is this, They Finished Their Course. And it goes like this. It's, it's kind of quite imaginative thinking. They finished their course in the 70s. Ten years later, they finished their course in the 80s. Ten years later, they finished their course in the 90s. Guess what the fourth one was called? Yeah, you've got it. They finished their course in the year 2000. And, and this book, every ten years, is produced. And it lists all the brethren who have died during that decade and what they did. And we may kind of Sort of, I don't know, this, people always seem to kind of roll their nose at when you mention the Plymouth Brethren. When I read those, I read them for a tonic to my soul. Because people who died in the 70s and 80s were ministering in the 40s and 50s of the last century and leading hundreds to Jesus. Let me just mention one man, Frank Knox. Frank Knox was a little Belfast Irish evangelist who had a tent he used to go all around Northern Ireland and fill the tent wherever he went. In fact, on one occasion, how about this? On one occasion, in the, in the middle of the 20th century, there were six tent campaigns taking place in Belfast alone, and everyone was full to standing room only. Six tent campaigns. Incredible man. And this man went around preaching the gospel and leading hundreds to the Lord Jesus. When I go to Northern Ireland, I sometimes stop with a man who's in his late 80s. He said, you know, as a young boy, he said, there was a work night down at the assembly where I was, was in attendance. And, and a man in trouble came in and said, I'm looking for the evangelist, Frank Knox, who was holding a mission a few weeks ago. And there were some elders doing some work in the church. And they said to this man, Noel, no, you know where Frank lives. Just go and knock his door and tell him there's a man here who wants to see him. So Noel was in his teenage years. He said, I ran down because I knew where Frank Knox lived, knocked on his door. And, and, and Frank said, come in, come in. He said, uh, 
I'm just having a time of prayer, so get down, we'll pray together. He said, I'm trying to say to Mr. Knox, Mr. Knox, I've got a message. He said, oh, let's pray together, brother. He said, I've never prayed before in my life in public. He said, there was I next to Frank Knox, and he was pleading with God for souls. Then he said, now then, young man, you have a go. And then he said, after an hour, Mr. Knox said, now, now why did you come? <laughs> he said, there's a man at the asylum who wants to see you. But these, these were men of God. These were men who did incredible things. And by the way, you would not find an ounce of liberalism in their theology. They may have been dry at times. They may have been non-charismatic. But looking for liberalism in a gospel hall is like looking for a bag of pork scratchings in Mecca. (laughs) You won't find it. But while we may kind of laugh, it was the brethren evangelists who at the age of 14 pointed me to Jesus. And I thank God for that. He preached very simply. But you know, I went home very clear at the age of 14. I needed that night to get right with the Lord. We need simple gospel preaching. And then fifthly, there were the independents. That's lots of people who just seem to rove the country. Not so much doing their own thing, obviously following the instructions of the Lord, but who were passionate to distance themselves from liberalism, from unbelief, from the immorality of people like Lloyd George and all that had been going on, and to say, we are all out for Jesus. On the World Peninsula, there is a place called Parkgate. When Nelson was alive, he used to come down to Parkgate and then sail out uh, down the D estuary. He used to meet Lady Hamilton there as well. But in Parkgate, there used to be a school called Mosting High School. It was a private school run by the Grenvilles. <coughs> William Grenville was a missionary doctor who went to Labrador. I just happened to hear on the grapevine that the whole school was being pulled down. So I drove all the way to the, to the, to the school, and it was surrounded by railings, and they were pulling the whole thing down. And I said to the man, can I come and see the chapel? He said, no. He said, you need boots, you need a hard hat, you need a high-vis jacket, you need permission. I said, I've got those three at home, I want permission. Okay, he said, I'll give you a phone number. Well, eventually, I got through, and I was allowed to go inside. I wanted to go into the chapel. This is the chapel where William Grenville stood who went onto the mission field, and where some of his family members had taught people the things of God. But I wanted to see one plaque. It was of a pupil called Arthur Jackson, who would study on the World Peninsula, felt called of God to go onto the mission field to preach the gospel. He, went, he eventually went. He wasn't there five minutes when he caught an infection and died. And there's his plaque. Here it is. Arthur Jackson, 25th of January, 1911. His heart was in the saving of the world. What a lovely thing for school to put to remember your time in that school. A young boy in the school had a heart for the saving of the world. Well, the 20th century was full of people like that. Gypsy Smith was another one. Have you ever read the biography of Gypsy Smith? He was all around the Luton area. And my grandmother was actually led to the Lord by Gypsy Smith. And uh, 
fascinating man, incredibly quick-witted man too. And uh, people used to mock him about his English and also uh, about the fact that he was a gypsy. And, and on one occasion he was preaching in Cambridge and uh, some students came to him and said, uh, Mr. Smith, is your donkey for sale? He said, why, does your mother want two? <laughs> kind of man he was. Gosh, you're slow. <laughs> and then in Scotland, a man called John McNeil. John McNeil. He was a station master. And uh, his pastor used to write to him. And while there was a lull between the passengers, he used to read his pastor's letters. And then he got saved. Read his biography. He said, when I got saved... I wanted to tell every passenger when I gave them a ticket, I've just been saved, I've just been saved. <laughs> Wonderful. John McNeil then became a very powerful Scottish evangelist in the 20th century and went all over the place preaching the gospel. As did Jock Troop. You must get the latest DVD on the life of Jock Troop. Anyone seen it? You must go and see it. It's, it's, it's about £10. A man called Gary Wilkinson. There's a few dots in there and a few W's, but just put Gary Wilkinson, Jock Troop. He does a whole range of videos on well-known characters. Jock Troop was a powerful man. He, he was a Scotsman who followed the, the fishing boats down from, from Peterhead down to Great Yarmouth. And he saw hundreds come to faith in Christ. W.P. Nicholson. What a man of God he was. Boy, he was rough and ready. And yet God used him powerfully. How about this? I don't know how it happened. This rough and ready Irish preacher finished up addressing the students at Cambridge University. And he was preaching and he was getting nowhere. So he stopped and said, I know what the problem is. He said, there are too many hypocrites here. So he said, we're going to sing a hymn. Would all the hypocrites please leave? <laughs> so a number got up and left including a few ministers. You know, and, and one wrote him and said, I've never been called a hypocrite before in my life. I'm insulted. He, he wasn't bothered by those kind of things. But you know, W.P. Nicholson led hundreds to Jesus. Hundreds. Again, and then there's John Govan, Scotland, taking the gospel out into communities. And then the 20th century gave birth to lots of organizations of which you have been probably members of or supported. Things like Crusaders. In the middle of the 20th century, 24,000 children were in Crusaders every week. And Crusaders primarily aimed at reaching the children who had no church connection. YLC, Frederick Wood, Arthur Wood. I think one of their sons was Morris Wood, if I remember rightly. In 1911, a young boy went to YLC called Sidlow. And Sidlow got converted. Sidlow who? Baxter. Yeah, they were doing their work. And then people like Tom Reese. Tom Reese, he held no less than 54 rallies in the Royal Albert Hall. He called it his little mission hall. <laughs> yeah. We can only fill the Royal Albert Hall these days with promised praise. He filled it with people wanting to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. That shows you, even in the last 50 years, what a big change it has been. Then came Billy Graham. When he arrived in 1954, he made the statement, 
I quote, Within five years, Britain will be witnessing a spiritual awakening such as not been seen since the days of John Wesley. That just shows me that Billy Graham is a great evangelist, but he's no prophet. Neither is he a son of the prophet. There is no doubt at all that he came and had a massive impact on the church in this country. He, he put new life into it, gave people a confidence in the Bible, made people realize they need to be born again. So he, he had a powerful ministry here. There's, there's no doubting, and, and thousands were, were brought into the kingdom of God. At his final meeting, we're told that there were 185,000 people in three different places for his final meeting saying, thank you, Lord, for all that has taken place and for we who've been brought into the kingdom of God. However, in 1968, the Evangelical Alliance published a report called On the Other Side. I don't know if you've read that report. And in 1968, the Evangelical Alliance admitted that while Billy Graham had shaken the church up, really he'd done nothing to impact the world. That's no criticism of him, by the way. It's just an observation. That is not belittling anyone who has come to faith in Christ through him, but really, he didn't touch the heart of Britain. And also the Evangelical Alliance then began to analyse all the people who would profess faith in Christ. The majority were those on the fringe of the church. Again, we thank God for every soul saved. But the hardened sinner, the godless, no. Not many of those kind of people were touched. Since then, an awful lot has happened, and we could spend the rest of the afternoon talking about it, but I just want to explain six things that have probably happened since the end of the Billy Graham, Louis Palau era. Six things, three that have happened in the world, and, and three that have happened in the church, to explain where we are today, and maybe one day we can pick up on the 21st century, but I'll leave that for somebody else. Let me start off with a radical statement, and then I hope it will make you think. When I was in school, we used to have discussions in the 1970s about World War III. When is World War III going to start? Which idiot is going to press that red button? And I could never understand as a young boy, where is this red button? <laughs> you, know, you, you go to the doctors at a red button, is that the button? I've thought long and hard about this. This is just my personal opinion. I believe that World War III has already started. I believe we're living in World War III. It's different from World War I, and it's different from World War II. World War III is made up of thousands of wars going on all over the world that collectively make this world a place of war. Can you think of anywhere in this world which is not at war anymore? It's going Isn't it amazing? It seems that we've just slipped into war. And we're now living in a world of conflict. So much so that I look at some of the places I've travelled to over the past 50 years, and I say to myself, I wouldn't go there, and I wouldn't go there, and I certainly wouldn't go there. Why? Because we're now living in a, country, in a world of war. But it's happened gradually. Now maybe you disagree with that. But I tell you what, there's a lot of conflict going on. Likewise, 
at a spiritual level, things have just gradually slipped or changed. And then suddenly you wake up and go, wow, that's happened. What are these six things? Number one, we now live in a country that has lost its understanding of sin. And if people are not conscious of their sinfulness, why do they need a saviour? And most people in 21st century Britain, when you speak to them, cannot understand why we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Why on earth do you need him? Because sin has virtually been eradicated. And all the major sins we have redefined. So greed no longer exists. It's called retail therapy. You have the courage to preach that on a Sunday morning. Greed is retail therapy. Covetousness doesn't exist. Just put it on the never-never. And you could go through all the major sins. We've redefined them. And when you open the sexual door, you say to yourself, if I value my life, I better close this door. Because I don't tackle any of things like adultery, fornication, homosexuality, and woe for women and woe. And you, uh, you try and tackle those issues. And so you're witnessing to someone and people living in gross sin or just living a very selfish, materialistic, covetous life, they think that's normal. And what is astounding is this, the majority of people in Britain think that what we're living at now is normal. So why do I need good news when I've got no bad news? The bad news is the economy. The bad news is what's going on in Syria. But I'm fine, thank you. This is life, isn't it? And so it seems difficult to offer people the gospel when they wonder why you're offering it. There's nothing wrong with me. Secondly, Paul, when he wrote to Timothy in chapter 3, verse 1 onwards, said that in the last days, Men have become lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God. And we live in an incredibly me-centered age. It's all about me, 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 me. Oh yes, there's interest in spirituality, but not the God of the Bible. And so yes, spirituality is back on the agenda, but the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's off the agenda. And so people are quite happy to talk about Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and Rastafarianism and whatever you want to do, whatever gives you a buzz, that's fine, until you mention Jesus. And then it's no go. Why is that? Because at the end of the day, all these other religions are just forms of idolatry. And idolatry is an indirect way of worshipping yourself. Because you are worshipping self-made images. And suddenly the set of people, you've got to get your eyes off yourself and onto him and from your sin onto his salvation. That does not go down well. By the way, how about this? Do me a favour. Go home. Access all the songs that you sing in your church alphabetically. You probably have them on PowerPoint. I will guarantee you this. The biggest section of your songs begin with I. I will do this. I will do that. 
And the number of times we sing in our songs, I'm going to offer up my life and lay down my life and give my life. Then the end I say, Lord, I've got more to give. Surely Christianity is not about what I can do. It's about him and what he has done. And we come into church and say, I will worship. No, Lord, I've come to look at you. And so even this I, this self, this little self, has almost come into the church. And we as preachers have got to be careful of that. I heard of a little boy who was the minister's son who, who after the service was, was over, he ran into the pulpit, he picked up the microphone. Surprising our children lifted out of the microphone. He said, look at me! And one lady said, just like his dad. And thirdly, I mentioned this in our first talk. We are finding the world is becoming incredibly fragmented and so is our country. And because community doesn't really exist, it's very difficult to know how to reach people because we don't live in community. And by the way, have you noticed? People don't want to talk to you these days. And it's, 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 it's scary to talk to people. I, I go walking and I speak as a man now. I go walking, you know, when you study at home maybe for 10 hours a day, I find it very easy to fall asleep when I'm praying. So I put my coat on, and because I live in the country, I can go for a walk. And I'm walking down the road, and the woman starts walking towards me in a quiet part of the country, and I'm going, help, what do I do? If she squeals, I'm finished. And so when I lived in Swindon, I used to walk around the park, it'd take me an hour. I met so many people, thought, David, you better get out of here. Just one day someone. That's the world we now live in. And so it's very difficult to talk because of what they may think or what they may accuse you of. And then people are that busy playing on their mobile phones, their laptops, their iPads, their iPlays, their ice cubes, you know, they, I don't know all these things. <laughs> that it's kind of, you feel you're interrupting all the time. And, and the idea of sitting down and talking to people is very hard. And so as community has gone, it's become all electronic. It's very difficult to break into people's lives. And then the final three relations of the church. Those three are the three changes that have taken place in the world. In relation to the church, there is no doubt about it that the church has lost its theological conviction. This idea that it's truth that saves people. And so we focus a great deal on the package rather than the contents. We've got to look good. We've got to look cool. Now listen, the last thing I'm suggesting is that we start living in the last century. I find this quite amusing, really. At the beginning, or at the end of the, 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 uh, the 20th century, the Episcopalians of America were having a conference in New York. Uh, and the final speaker finished his final talk by saying this. He said, brothers and sisters, I want you to know this that if the 1960s ever come round again, we as a denomination are ready. Okay? And, and I know some wonderful churches that are ready for the 1960s. Yes. Uh, well, no, we're living, in the, we're living in the 21st century, but listen, we mustn't be afraid of, of truth. We must live in the 20th century and walk the old road with new shoes. But that has happened in the church. 
Secondly, we live where we see the social gospel taking over. It's, it's very unique for me to find a group of evangelists who are here because they're passionate about Jesus and about his word and getting it out. And yet these days we hear about, you know, building shelters outside the church and you know how it is, washing up sick, doing people's gardens, taking drunks home at one o'clock in the morning to their wives and getting them up from the pub. That's very kind, but that's not the gospel. And I admire anyone who wants to give up their night mopping up sick or taking home drunks. I mean, that's fine for you, and that's what God has called it, that's fine. But that is not the gospel. And yet we seem to have replaced the gospel with what is called the social gospel. And uh, it's really affecting the church. And the third thing I would say in closing is this. It would almost seem in Britain, I don't mean to leave you on a discouraging note, but it would almost seem that nationally God has taken his hand off us. When I see what has happened during the early part of the 20th century and the 19th century and the 18th century, we are living in tough days. But we do not lose heart. Why? I think of the words of Esther. We have been born for such a time as this. Yes, it would be romantic to say, oh, to have heard John Wesley. Oh, to have heard George Whitfield. Oh, to have sat under Mr. Spurgeon. Oh, to have seen this person, to be seen. But we haven't. We're here. We have been born for such a time as this. And sometimes we may feel in the wrong century, but God doesn't make mistakes. And by the way, think of the children of Israel in Egypt for 450 years. It was only one generation that saw Joseph and one generation that saw Moses. The rest were in tough days. But because of their faithfulness, when Moses came, they were ready. I don't know why the Lord has put me in the 21st century. I really don't know. But I'm here. God, you've put me here. Therefore, I'm not going to moan the days in which I live, but the days in which I live, Lord, I want to be faithful. One final thought. The book of Daniel, 12 chapters, seems to be supernatural from beginning to end. Daniel lived into his 90s. If you read the book of Daniel carefully, all the supernatural experiences that Daniel had, as recorded in the book of Daniel, all took place on five days. Five days out of 90 years. The rest was just getting on, living for the Lord in a strange land. And yet, the Lord Jesus said, he was a prophet. We would love to have five supernatural things before breakfast, one after breakfast, and maybe one before tea. If they happen, we thank God for them. But if not, we say, Lord, as I prayed this morning in the prayer meeting, Lord, when the enemy comes in, and the Hebrew then puts a comma there, comma. When the enemy comes in, comma, like a flood, the Lord will lift up a standard against it. Lord, may I be part of that standard. It says in the world, words of Charles Wesley, happy 
if with my latest breath I may but gasp his name, preach into all and cry in death, Behold, behold the Lamb. Friends, we are 20, 21st century people. Let's make the best of it for the glory of the Lamb. Let's pray together. Father, these are interesting days, but I give you thanks you still have your people here. We, we can't fix results. That's not our department, Father. It's your department. But we can be faithful, honest, and loyal. Men and women who point to the Lord Jesus. Father, I thank you for every evangelist here who by your strength and by your grace is seeking to point people to the Lord Jesus. Encourage them. Equip them. Inspire them. And Lord, when things get tough, may they look back to some of these people and say, wait a minute. I'm surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Therefore, let me carry on running the race and keeping the faith and fixing my eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. Father, if I've spoken nonsense over these past three sessions, just wash it out of our ears. If any of you can be used by you, I pray use it for your glory. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.